In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined by Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent who spent plenty of time in Georgia covering all this election fun. Tamar, how you doing? Good. Happy to be taking a little bit of a break after what turned out to be, you know, some overtime in this election season. Exactly. And a programming note, the reason why this is coming a few days later than it usually does is because we weren't, we didn't want to tape a, a podcast on Thursday or, or Friday um, with the race outcome so, so much in the, up in the air and then have it, you know, play a couple of days later with, with no result when we knew there would probably be some sort of resolution over the weekend. And that's exactly what we got. Yeah, you were working overtime on, on Friday night. We got the announcement you know, an hour or two beforehand on Friday afternoon that Stacey Abrams was going to make some sort of big announcement. And we, when it became clear that she um, was stepping out of the race for governor, she won't call it conceding, um, you and our colleague Tia Mitchell were kind of working around the clock through, over the weekend as well. Yeah, we knew things would come to a head over the weekend because we knew we got some pretty clear guidance that um, the election was likely to be certified on Saturday. Um, and we knew that the vote tallies weren't going to change substantially. So the question was going to be whether Stacey Abrams is going to have some sort of, you know, concession, abandoning the race, whatever, or whether she would try to contest it in court. And um, she kind of floated a trial balloon early Friday morning about whether or not she would contest the election. Um, and look, that's a very high legal burden. Um, she was about 17,000 net votes shy of forcing a runoff. And she would have had to prove that this, that number plus one, basically 17,600 or so votes, voters were disenfranchised um, to be able to legitimately contest the election of court. And I don't think she, she had those numbers. Yeah, but with, with that said, you know, she did announce after she got out of the race um, that she was going to be filing a new federal lawsuit against the state of Georgia, alleging mismanagement and, and malfeasance at, at all levels. Um, when it comes to voter registration and the operation of the election system. But that was through a new organization that she announced called Fair Fight Georgia. And, and what do we know about that initiative so far, Greg? Yeah, we know this is, this is not going to be a voter registration um, initiative. Uh, instead of trying to, that, that was her new Georgia project, the last big um, voting rights group she started. This instead will, will seek fundamental changes in electoral policy through the court system. Um, and also, perhaps also through the, through the legislative system next year, although um, Democrats are a lot more skeptical about that working with the Republican-controlled legislature and 
in Governor Kemp next year to be the, uh, the you know the ultimate decision maker on whether or not those bills come come to law. So they're looking through the federal court system for making these changes. And some of the things she outlined in her very fiery non-concession speech um, kind of hinted at where those where this mitigation might might be involved. And that includes signature ballots, absentee ballots. Um, there, are, there are no state standards on how to count and accept these absentee ballots. And that's where a lot of this is going is to sort of focus on, is Brian Kemp often said that he had no control over county elections officials. He, he was the top, the state's top elections official. He didn't have any say over how counties ran their elections, or very little say. Well, this lawsuit could seek to have some federally mandated changes to how the state and how counties operate their election systems. Yeah, and Abrams' team mentioned that kind of in the meantime, as they're winding up for this, they, they're going to be taking testimony from elections workers at different precincts, academics, statisticians, so, so kind of figuring out the scope of this potential lawsuit or likely lawsuit. You got it. And look, she gave a very non, you know, non-traditional political speech uh, that Friday night when she didn't concede but ended her campaign because usually what we hear is politicians conceding in some, it's a very sort of uh, familiar trope. Politicians go up there, they, they thank everyone, they say we're still fighting our fight, we have not given up, yada, 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 but then they, you know, then they say congratulations to the victor um, and, and they use the word concede in some form or fashion. Stacey Avery did, did not do that. She said she's not going to hold to those standards. She feels like this was not a fair fight. She feels like the, the playing field was tilted toward Brian Kemp, um, mostly because Brian Kemp was still the Secretary of State throughout the entire election. He only resigned two days after uh, the vote. And so she's going to be uh, making that case uh, over the next couple of years, as she also considers maybe what to do next, which could be a run for governor in 2022 or a run for U.S. Senate against David Perdue in 2020. Oh yeah, and that that non-concession concession speech really um, kind of lit up social media when it came on on Friday evening. Um, you know, the people that love Stacey Abrams loved that speech. You know, they felt like she she wasn't giving up the the good fight and was going to continue onward. But the people, um, you know, a lot of the Republicans who are not fans of Stacey Abrams, it really upset them. Um, they felt like Kemp was the rightful victor and that she owed him. A, a concession and, you know, kind of well wishes. At the same time, you, you saw Kemp in, in, you know, a speech over the weekend um, kind of offering a little bit of an olive branch or at least talking a little bit more about unifying the state after what was really um, a contentious election going back two years. Yeah, not just Kemp, but also surprisingly President Trump, who just a couple of weeks ago said that Stacey Abrams was, in his words, not qualified to be Georgia governor and that she would turn Georgia into Venezuela. I don't know how, but that's what he said. Um, you know, also say she has a hard-fought campaign. Thank her for her time and say that she's on solid political footing in the future. So we had well wishes from both the Republicans. What Republicans are worried about and what Kemp supporters are worried about, you know, privately and publicly is that there will be questions about the legitimacy of the election that, that, that hurt the states, not just hurt him, but hurt the state's standing um, as big, huge events happen over the next couple of years. I mean, think about, you know, a hurricane response, a disaster in Georgia, whatever it might be, if there are questions about whether or not Brian Kemp was the legitimately elected Georgia governor, he's got to respond to these disasters and these emergencies, and a big, huge segment of the Democratic population doesn't trust that he was actually elected fairly, they're worried about what that does to the integrity of, of you know, Georgia's political system. Uh, and that's why he has a lot of work cut out for him to, to show that he is a, 
he's a he's a you know he he won by 50.2 percent of the vote, but he's a governor of all Georgians. We'll see if he can managed to sort of eke out that argument. And yeah, think about, you know, the two of us have been covering, and you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been following the gubernatorial race for months and years um, and know about a lot of these twists and turns. But think about when most of the nation started paying attention to this race. It was back, I believe, oh God, it was September or October when that report ran in the AP about the 53,000 uh, votes that had been, you know, purged from the, the rolls. And, and that's when people first started really paying attention to, to Georgia um, and to Brian Kemp. And so that certainly doesn't help Republicans as they kind of think about where the state is kind of on the national stage. You also think about, you know, in the hours after um, Abrams stepped aside from this race, you had a lot of calls from people in Hollywood saying, um, you know, because Kemp won and, you know, amid all this turmoil about you know, the state of the election system, should, should people in Hollywood really be supporting the state of Georgia by filming their movies here? Yeah, I'll quibble with your point a little bit because um, Stacey Abrams had got a tremendous amount of national attention, partly because of her quest to be the nation's first black female elected governor. Um, and, and I think I just remember in July and in May, her name was being used without, her, you know, her full name was just being used in New York Times headlines. So she was getting a lot of attention. But I do agree that, that that AP report, which which ended up driving a lot of hyperbole about about people being blocked and rejected from voting, that worried a lot of Democrats too, because they were worried that people just wouldn't vote. Um, and the Kemp campaign didn't really have a really quick or effective or aggressive response to that, even though there were some inaccuracies in all that national reporting around that. Um, really, really cast more attention not just on the governor's race, but specifically on voter suppression. And then we saw more reports about. Um, more, more insight about the voter cancellations and the voting problems. And really one of the big struggles for any Secretary of State running, and that's one of the reasons probably that the next Secretary of State who does run for higher office will probably resign, is that anything the local counties do ends up falling at the feet of the Secretary of State. That means if DeKalb County, Georgia's bluest county, has three-hour-long lines, or Fulton County, another super democratic county, has ridiculously long lines, or there's electrical outlet problems, or there's too few voting machines, or there's too few vote provisional ballots, or whatever, or, or precincts were closed. All things we saw throughout this year that were up to the counties, it also lays, gets laid at Brian Kemp's feet. And there's an argument to be made, too. He always says it's local. It's a local issue. But there's an argument to be made, too, from Democrats saying, hey, you know, uh, hurricane response is, is is essentially a local issue too, you know, with local counties and, and police departments responding. But if it goes awry, you know, should we not blame the governor? You know, right? So that, that's sort of the argument is that he didn't do a good enough job at preparing the counties for this huge surge of turnout that they saw. And look, we had counties and we had Democratic-leaning counties, election supervisors say, we did not prepare whatsoever. We had no idea this happening. Um, Fulton County's election supervisor and Cobb County's election supervisor both said essentially that, is that we, we were not properly bracing for all these voters. That falls at their feet, but I think Democrats are going to try to make it also Kemp's problem, too, uh, even as he transitions to power as governor. Exactly. And then just to think about all the big kind of 
national and international events and businesses that Georgia is going to be trying to woo in the months and years ahead. Um, I mean, I know we're hosting the Super Bowl coming up, but Atlanta is going to, I'm sure, be in the running for a lot of big other events. And I think there is certainly some anxiety on the, the Republican side that, you know, especially if these are big companies based in, you know, liberal states like New York or California, that they may see Georgia in a less favorable light and may not want to park their dollars in, in Georgia. And I think you saw that a little bit with some of these actors and directors in the aftermath of the, the gubernatorial race being certified, saying, hey, we need to start boycotting Georgia. And you even saw Abrams go on Twitter right after that saying, hey, you know, don't, don't take all of this out on you know, workers in the state who might be working in film and, and television production and make their living that way. So it'll certainly be an interesting fight uh, looking ahead, especially after, you know, Atlanta didn't get the Amazon HQ to, um, you know, headquarters uh, about what Republicans do to kind of make sure that, that Georgia still stays on, um, you know, in the mix when it comes to some of these big economic development deals. You got it. I mean, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work going on right now as we speak with Republicans privately trying to uh, tell exe you know, executives in the movie industry or in economic development uh, industries essentially that Brian Kemp would not be some sort of harbinger, some, you know, a halt on economic development in Georgia. A lot of that work revolves around religious liberty bills. And it's a very complicated topic because Brian Kemp and every other Republican in Georgia running for governor supported some version of religious liberty. And frank, frankly, in the Republican primary, if they didn't, if Casey Cagle had come out and said, I don't support this, it would have been the end of this campaign. That, that's how prominent of a, of, of a role religious liberty plays in the, in the Republican primary. Once he got to the general election, he had to sort of add some more nuance to his message saying, yes, I support religious liberty bill, but I only support the exact copy of the version that passed in federal Congress in 1983. To Democrats and to critics of that bill, that's, that still goes way too far. They still see that bill as discriminatory. Um, the, the truth is it probably won't even make it to Kemp's desk next year because I can't see it really going through um, the, the, the Georgia legislature. That remains to be seen. Uh, but still, they've got to do a lot of back-end work trying to tell Hollywood executives that, hey, you know, that Georgia's still Georgia. This is still a... Uh, a hub for movie making, the tax credit's not going anywhere, and, um, and, and they're probably tell, also telling them also that religious liberty bill uh, might not gain any traction, any significant traction next year too. Yeah, you start to see a little bit of a shift. Um, you know, there, there was a special session of the legislature in the, the last week um, to deal in part, you know, in addition to, to Hurricane Michael cleanup efforts, getting some money toward that. Um, one of the other major things on the agenda was securing a, a tax break for Delta, which if you remember earlier this year, that was something that, that Casey Cagle, then the, the front runner for the Republican gubernatorial nomination, seemed very keen on, on getting rid of for Delta in, in the lead up to the, the Republican primary. Um, so, so kind of the maneuvering of Nathan Deal to kind of help Brian Kemp when it comes to this big, powerful constituency that is Delta, um, to, to kind of help him out with that uh, in the lead up to the transition was, was pretty interesting. And they did it so quickly and without much of a fight. You got it. I mean, that, that's, the, that's sort of the subtext of this whole next phase that we're watching is, is, how, is whether or not a conservative like Brian Kemp, who promised to expand gun rights, to sign religious liberty, and to pass the nation's strictest abortion 
measures in the primary, but in the general also talk a lot more about school safety and giving teachers pay raises, how he balances those competing threads and how he also deals with a shrinking Republican majority. Republicans still control the, the Georgia legislature by a pretty decent margin, but it's a lot less than it was um, just a few months ago, right? I mean, Democrats now have about 75. They, they picked up about 11 or 12 seats in the Georgia House, and they picked up a net of two seats in the Georgia Senate, which doesn't sound like a huge swing, but, but it's important. And what that means is, too, for constitutional amendments that need two-thirds of a chamber's backing, it's going to be a lot harder for Republicans to do that without significant Democratic support now. Um, so he'll have to navigate a very, um, a very divided caucus now, a very divided Georgia legislature now, too, in a way that Deal made look kind of easy, especially in the last, his second term. I mean, Deal was able to get huge majorities for all of his most significant initiatives, the things that were really his, you know, criminal justice, transportation funding. He was able to pass that. There was some, there was some opposition from both parties on some of those measures, but, uh, you know, rarely did it come down to the wire. Uh, whereas Brian Kemp is going to have a lot harder, uh, harder road to haul because part of it goes back to what we talked about earlier. There are some Democratic lawmakers who, who completely agree with Stacey Abrams' decision not to concede and view him as, as an illegitimate governor. And that's going to be, it's going to be tough for him to navigate as well. One other thing that's going to be that he's going to have to be very conscious of in the next two years, um, talking about those dozen or so uh, state house seats that the Republicans lost this year, almost all of them were in suburban Atlanta, and that's something that a lot of Republicans have anxiety about going into David Perdue's 2020 race and just kind of looking at the future of the Republican Party in statewide contests moving forward. A lot of these seats were were in one, you know, stronghold you know, long held by the Republicans. We're talking about Gwinnett County, Cobb County, North Fulton County, um, you know, and those were seats that, that Democrats, you know, took almost all of these state legislators out of. And so that's going to be something they're going to have to worry about. What are issues that can kind of bring a lot of these suburban women, especially, who, who used to vote for, you know, Republicans, but in this gubernatorial race maybe went for Stacey Abrams, how do you bring them back into the fold? I, I doubt that will be through very socially conservative things like religious liberty, although perhaps for some of those women, you know, that could be it. But Kent might have to think about some, some kind of more middle-of-the-road issues that can bring folks back into the fold. Kemp will, and you know who else will, too, David Perdue and Rob Woodall. And as we're speaking right now, Rob Woodall has a 400-serve vote lead that looks like he is, you know, that he's, he's won another term, unless a recount shows anything significantly different. And David Perdue, of course, is up for um, a second term, what he says is his final term in the U.S. Senate in 2020. But both of them obviously watched the map turn from a pretty dark shade of red in the metro Atlanta suburbs to a deeper blue, uh, with Democrats winning pretty much all of their gains um, were in northern metro Atlanta, except for about one or two house seats south of, south of the city in the south metro Atlanta suburbs. Um, but that is a huge area of concern for Republicans, because that's also where the Georgia population is growing, while vast parts of rural Georgia are not growing. So it's seen as this was basically the last time that the Republican traditional form, formula of holding Gwinnett and Cobb County and racking up giant margins in rural Georgia to wring out enough votes is going to work because now Democrats have a, have a firm, firmer grip on Cobb and Gwinnett counties after two straight elections where they won both those counties. And um, in rural Georgia, you know, look, 
Brian Kemp got 90% of the vote in some rural Georgia counties, which is astounding. But those counties also have four or 5,000 voters, a lot of them. You know, whereas you look at Gwinnett County, Metro Atlanta, those counties, they account for the giant portion of the, of the of electorate. And you, you Republicans can't continue to lose the suburbs and hope to win the state. Exactly. So I think, you know, it's pretty safe to say you're going to see a big focus on economic issues. Um, Republicans have consistently emphasized, you know, their, their emphatic support for the film tax credits in Georgia. Um, you're going to, Brian Kent has talked a lot about another round of, of tax cuts. I think you're going to see a lot more focus on the economics because that's something uh, where, where they feel like they have a very strong standing when it comes to a lot of middle-of-the-road voters. Yep, and we're going to be watching how... A, how Brian Kent navigates those threads, and B, of course, what Stacey Abrams is going to do next. She's told us in an interview on Saturday that she's going to take some time off, she's going to get some more sleep. Stacey, by the way, is some, Ms. Abrams is, is someone who usually gets by in four or five hours of sleep, um, probably even less during the campaign cycle, so we're hoping that she gets a little bit more rest, just like, just like we're hoping to get a little bit more rest. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Governor-elect Kent is working on his transition, and just on Monday morning, he announced a transition team of, of about two dozen lawmakers and financiers and operatives and activists. And one of the more interesting names on that list was former Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price, who is going to be playing a key role in shaping Kemp's health care policy. And he's making a little bit of a, a comeback onto Georgia's policy stage at least. Exactly. We're, we're starting to see some chatter when it comes to the 6th District House seat that, that Tom Price once held and that Karen Handel lost in this, uh, in this election, kind of surprisingly, to gun control advocate Lucy McBath. That's a seat that Newt Gingrich once famously held Johnny Isaacson. Um, and so I think Republicans are definitely seeking revenge when it comes to, to that particular seat. So I don't know if Price comes back and makes a bid for his old place in, in the House or if we could see some other names perhaps some folks who lost their state house districts this, uh, this last cycle, but that is certainly a, a, a district to watch. I would also say to keep a very close eye on the 7th Congressional District, which appears that, uh, you know, Rob Woodall just barely held on to this, this year. He won by more than 20 points back in 2016, but he squeaked out a win of only about 419 votes this year. Um, so Democrats, I know, feel very energized that Carolyn Bordeaux has gotten so close this year. Um, and, and I'm certain that we're going to see some real investment early on in 2020. You got it. Well, um, speaking of 2020, we're going to be following all the twists and turns to 2020. But in the shorter term, we're hoping to take a little bit of a break uh, for Thanksgiving. So we hope, you, we hope you guys all have a restful, enjoyable Thanksgiving holiday. Tomorrow, I know you, you're looking forward to some time off, and so am I. Oh, yeah. I think we all need a, a cocktail and lots and lots of sleep. Until next time, folks, keep in touch. Keep watching politicallygeorgia.com and our Twitter feeds for all the latest news. And hopefully we're going to have a little bit less of it over the next week. But I might have jinxed myself. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. 
Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. 